Children's Church, you're dismissed. spent that week in the Word, uh, in relationship and fellowship with one another and with God. Uh, to last week, I just was refreshed. I enjoyed that message. I enjoyed the time we had together. And so far this morning, I have also been renewed and refreshed uh, by the worship, by the people. And so hopefully I don't mess it up here now with the Word. But it is a little bit different. Uh, this week I'm not going to have many fun stories or Disney movie references or whatever, but we will be finishing up chapter 2 of Colossians, and that's actually going to lead us into a break for the next month through December. We're going to take that time, those, those Sunday mornings, to observe what Christ has done, the spirit, the meaning behind Christmas, and uh, because I, I love the book of Colossians, and it's really broken down in these two ways. Chapter 1 and 2, which we'll finish today, which we've been working through for months now, really, uh, it is the theology, it is the substance, it's the grounds upon which chapters 3 and 4 stand. Uh, chapters 1 and 2 is the theology, the doctrine, while chapters 3 and 4 is the practice, the practical things for them to live and follow and do uh, as Christians because of everything uh, that we've discussed in 1 and 2. So we're going to be finishing up uh, chapter 2 today, taking a break, and then after the first of the year, getting into chapter 3. Um, to set the tone, really, for today, uh, the, an old pastor, when he was asked what his biggest frustration was throughout his many years in the church, he responded with this. He said, perhaps after all these years in ministry, I should be used to it, but it still bothers me. And I suppose it should always bother me when those who profess to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ for many years still act as if they were either babes in their faith or not followers of Christ at all. There are many reasons that people remain immature in their walk with the Lord or revert to immaturity. Among these are ignorance, which is a lack of biblical instruction, uh, stumbling, which is when they are enticed into sin, stubbornness, which is a pride that hinders confession and submitting yourself to Christ, selfishness, which is a desire to have your own way rather than God's way, and erroneous teaching, which is uh, them being led into false beliefs. Jesus gave many ways uh, and uh, many warnings concerning these dangers, and Paul's letters are often correcting or uh, encouraging uh, his people towards spiritual growth and maturity. We read about that in uh, chapter 1, verse 28. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. That is the prize. That is the goal for us now. Now that we have come to know Christ is for us to grow in maturity with him. And so uh, if you remember last week, Paul was, he had just established our identity in Christ. Because of Christ, we are full and new and alive and free and victorious. And that is great and it is exciting and it is refreshing to remember that. But even with this wonderful truth of, of who we are in Christ, we often struggle with thinking that we need more. 
We struggle to think that we need something else, something more. The Colossians, they had the same issues and even uh, had some in the church and outside the church telling them that they need more than what they've already received in Christ. So this morning we're going to start examining the specific warnings Paul gives to the Colossians at the end of chapter 2. It was from these specific warnings that we learn of these three different types of false doctrine that he was speaking against. Uh, Legalism, aestheticism, and mysticism. So let us begin with the text. Um, chapter Chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. Therefore... Don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. So let no one condemn you by delighting in aesthetic practices or in the worship of angels, claiming, um, claiming access to a visionary realm. Such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. He doesn't hold on to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, grows with growth from God. If you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. Although these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. So what Paul was speaking against here Let's start in verse 16. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. What Paul was speaking against here was that the false teachers were advocating for the the number of Jewish ordinances, uh, a number of Jewish observances of the Mosaic law, that the Christians were going to have to continue to follow that if they wanted to be Christians. If they wanted spiritual growth, if they wanted to live according to God, they were going to have to observe these old things. The false teachers were saying that they would have to observe these special dietary restrictions of food and drink and observe certain calendar days, certain holidays, just as the Mosaic law had required. Paul was speaking against this practice, saying for them not to feel judged because these things were no longer required of them. Their faith was no longer defined by what they ate, by what they drank. Um, The covenant restrictions of pork, for example, was gone. Praise God, you know. And now, instead of certain days of required observance like Passover, unleavened bread, Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Booths, the Day of Atonement, uh, the new moon one that it talks about here, Pentecost, uh, now every day, We could celebrate God. Every day we could observe him and celebrate our atonement because Christ had come. So because instead of God's people now being set apart and looking different by their actions, by what they ate, by what they drank, by what they kept their calendar schedule as, they are now set apart. They are now different because they have been raised with Christ. He has changed Everything, and we see this in verse 17. Verse 17, these are a shadow 
of what was to come. The substance is Christ. The meaning, the purpose, it is all developed, it is all brought to conclusion in, fulfilled by Christ. These were a shadow, these were just symbols. Christ has come and fulfilled the point of all of that, and the substance of their faith is not in the practice itself. It was in Christ who was coming and who has now come. Paul didn't want the Colossians to fall into the trap of legalism that was being presented to them. Uh, We talk about and teach about legalism today, which is when man creates laws on top of God's and calls them his or or makes them necessary when they are not. Uh, This was similar yet different because it was against the Mosaic laws, the laws of the covenant that God had put in place for the Jews, but they were now fulfilled. They had now been complete, made complete by Christ. And therefore, for the most part, they were now obsolete because Christ in his work had either replaced or fulfilled their purposes. We see Christ combat legalism most often with the Pharisees, with the church people of the day. The Pharisees often condemned Jesus and his disciples for the things that they did. Matthew 15, it records their condemnation for the disciples uh, for eating without ceremonially washing their hands first something that is not required in the Mosaic law. Jesus pointed out that while the disciples may have been violating Jewish traditions that had developed, the Pharisees were violating the Lord's commands in preference to their own traditions. So by comparison, the disciples had a speck in their eye for the indifference they had shown the Pharisees' cultural sensitivities, while the Pharisees themselves had logs in their own eyes violating God's word, and yet they were judging the disciples for the speck. The Pharisees had placed greater importance on keeping their traditions than on obeying God. That is the nature of legalism, for it removes context from what is being done and places a higher value on traditions developed by man than what God has actually said. The legalism that we face today is still similar And in many ways, yet still holds the same shadow, the same emptiness. Many man-made laws get built upon those already in the word in the hopes for us to better keep the ones that God has given us. But they can go too far. They can become unnecessary and restrictive. And we become slaves to the law instead of willing servants to God. So as we um, look at this, there's not a certain way, right, that you need to dress at church. That's not true. You're not a more mature Christian if you're in a suit, right? Uh, What's on the outside doesn't reflect on what's the inside, but that's just an example of one of the things that we build up in many churches today. The guy worshiping in rags in India right now is no less holy, no less saved, no less a saint than the one in the Armani suit, the church that meets in a $30 million building, they are not more spiritual, they are not more blessed than the church that is meeting in secret so they do not get arrested in a basement somewhere in China right now. There's no dress code, there's no one translation, there is only Christ that redeems. Legalism cannot save you, it can only restrict and distract you from the things that actually matter. Let no one condemn you 
by delighting in aesthetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm. Such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. Paul mentions in this section that there are those delighting in self-abasement, as the New American Standard Version says. Uh, this is another phrase that it has a range of translation. The KJV uh, translates it as voluntary humility. Uh, the New King James, the NIV, translated it as delight in false humility. It is in the context that it makes it clear that the humility being described here is not the same as the humility that is praised throughout the rest of Scripture, right? True humility comes from a correct understanding of both God and your position before him. The people described here neither properly, neither properly understood God or properly understood their position before him. Uh, so that's why the CSB, it directly translates it to the name of the, un, of the belief that the uh, false teachers were promoting, which was aestheticism. Aestheticism um, was the severe self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of worldly indulgence. Uh, they thought that they could grow closer to God by giving up the things of this world based on their own ideas about making them holier, right? We can see examples of this today and for centuries in monks that live in solitude and abstain from many of the things of this world that are actually gifts from God, like marriage, for example, because they think that that sacrifice, that that disciplining, that punishment, that withholding from some of these things, what Paul calls a false humility, would make them grow closer to God. They were wrong then and they were wrong now. Next, some of these false teachers had the idea that being uh, material cannot direct, uh, since they are material, since they are flawed beings, they cannot directly approach God. They cannot directly approach him who is in spirit. So they thought that they needed to, uh, to be able to reach God, to be able to talk to him, communicate with him. They had to have an intermediary, someone to come between them. And that is why they turned to um, something that they perceived as higher than man, but lower than God, which was angels. That's how they viewed angels. So they sought to worship God by first worshiping angels and using them as the middleman, the go-between between them and God. Some of these false teachers at Colossae were pushing people to listen to their great visions that they had experienced. They were holding higher to those who had experienced these subjective things uh, that weren't necessarily based on or centered in Christ. They were saying, hey, you have a special experience. Like, you have to have this. You have to experience this just as I have. Uh, if you don't have these visions, if you don't worship angels, uh, you're not really experiencing the faith. You're not really experiencing Jesus, and your faith is not genuine. They were promoting the necessity of mysticism. Uh, that's what we're going to use to describe supernatural experiences as proof of their faith. Paul is pretty harsh with them. He says they are puffed up without reason by their unspiritual minds. The irrational and the anti-intellectual spiritual experience isn't Christian. We don't see the, in the Bible Christians experiencing some intense religious thing that has no explanation or explicit purpose, right? Even at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, an incredible supernatural thing happens. 
the Holy Spirit comes down on the disciples as tongues of fire resting on each of their heads. And this was clearly a supernatural experience. But guess what? It wasn't just an experience for those who had the tongues of fire sitting upon their heads. The purpose wasn't to make them feel any more special, anything. It was to reveal God in his power, show that it is real, but also equip them with the ability to speak these different languages, not a heavenly language, but human languages, so that all these different people from all over the world could hear the truth of Jesus Christ and the gospel. If you read in Acts chapter 2, it was very obvious that the entire event was specifically to jumpstart the growth of the church, the spread of the gospel to all these different nations and peoples and languages. There's almost never a subjective individual experience outside of your personal conversion that was is for the sake of the experience alone it was always for the sake of the truth and for the sake of the gospel Uh, god did not split the sea just to prove a point he split the sea to free his people from egypt right god doesn't do these things even though he could because he's miraculous because he's glorious to just bring that one person closer to god even in paul who Christ literally appeared to. He blinded him. That was to bring Paul forward. He brought Paul out of all these wrecks, out of prison, out of uh, how many times was he shipwrecked? Three, four, whatever. He brought Paul through all that, not to give Paul some special power, but to forward the gospel, to use him as a tool so that even today, thousands of years later, we are reading Paul's letter to the Colossian church. So a lot of times, especially today, uh, a lot of times, if we want to grow spiritually, maybe you think that the way to do that is to experience something dramatic or epic, uh, something that you perceive as life-changing. And sometimes God moves in those ways, for sure. And we can see that evidence in some of the people here. Some of your testimonies are miraculous because of the death he brought you out of to the life that he has given you now. But the truth is, all conversions are miraculous because of who Christ is, not how you came to know him. Some of you would claim to have a boring testimony, but you're wrong. They are all miraculous because of who Christ is, because of what he did. And just because you cannot see the depths of your sin, because the depths of your deadness compared to the life you have now, that doesn't change the reality of what Christ has done and of who he is. And so I think we'd be surprised. Um, Oftentimes still we desire an emotional, even a physical, spiritual experience, right? Uh, And I think we'd be surprised, though, to see how much God desires to stimulate our minds more than he wants to stimulate our senses. Of course, there can be an incredible emotional and incredible physical reaction when you're worshiping God. Um, But it doesn't start with emotion, It doesn't start with getting your heart beat up. It doesn't start with crying. It has to start with truth and the truth of Christ. The emotional and physical reactions to the Spirit have to start in the truth of Christ or else they have no substance other than a self-fulfillment. 
We cannot make ourselves grow through some experience that we're seeking. We cannot manufacture the Holy Spirit moving with lights and noise and charismatic speakers. Uh, a false understanding of this comes out when churches believes, uh, churches today even believe if somebody's not dancing or running up and down the aisle, then, then the Spirit's not there in the church. It's not moving within them. You hear churches saying, uh, not necessarily in our uh, theological belief, but in some others, that you're not really saved until you start speaking in tongues. Many of us have seen this in our mountain culture, that if a preacher's not yelling, sweating, having an aneurysm, you know, then the spirit is not in him, that he is dry, that he's not moving, uh, that he's come with nothing. But that is not true. All of that is seeking a performance, seeking a, an experience over a, a genuine substance, a genuine truth and understanding of God. Yeah, people can be overwhelmed by the Spirit. They can fall on their faces and weep. They can be healed. They can dance and sing. And preachers can yell because of the movement of the Spirit. But it's just a show unless it is grounded in the truth of the word and it must come from Christ so all that legalism all that aestheticism all that mysticism it may look good it may sound good it may make you feel like you've got a special spiritual trophy to carry around but as Paul describes it it is empty and unspiritual anything that is real must come from Christ and Christ alone. And that's why Paul says what he does at the end of verse 19. He says, he doesn't hold on to the head from whom the whole body nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons grows with a growth from God. Paul was saying, don't let anyone of the false teachers condemn or disqualify you. Meaning, don't let them say that you're not a Christian because you don't believe or partake in their false humility, their empty sacrifice, their false theology, their false worship, their false and empty experiences. They are wrong because they have not held on to the head. They have not held on to Christ. They have lost touch with him, the one who is the substance of true faith. So these false teachers were saying here, what they were saying here is that uh, my man-made things, these things I've done, these things I've seen, they work for me. Since they work for me and make me feel more spiritual, you need to do them in order to be spiritual like me. You need to get up at 6 a.m. every morning and read your Bible for an hour and then pray for two hours or else you don't truly love God. You need to go on seven mission trips a year or else you don't truly love God. You need to give away all your money. You need to uh, make millions of money or else God hasn't blessed you. He hasn't uh, shown you his favor unless you do these things. And if you don't do them, if you don't experience this like I've experienced this, then you don't love or know God. Sometimes it's not false teachers that come against us and try to condemn us, judge us like this. Um, it's our own brothers and sisters in Christ. Sometimes we forget that there is no such thing as a cookie-cutter Christian or a cookie-cutter Christian life. Um, there are things that must be the same. Yes, we must believe in Jesus, uh, in his word. Uh, there's lots of doctrine and so on that, yeah, we must unify around. But while that is true, we will not all look the same or act the same 
This isn't a cult. We don't all get matching Nikes and Kool-Aid at the end of the day. Um, God has made us different. He's given us different gifts, different talents, different perspectives, different challenges and callings in life, but they are all for him. Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, uh, whatever you do or don't do, so long as it's not against his will, do for the glory of God. That's the freedom we have in his grace. So yes, as a church, a family, a body, we are called to hold each other accountable, to be knit together, bound. Um, But there's a difference between pointing out flaws and patching them up. If you see someone who doesn't study their Bible, you don't lay into them for it. You take the time to study it with them. Uh, If you see a man who is being an ungodly or an abusive father, you don't shame them. You take them to God's word and you let them, you let him reshape them. If you catch your brother or sister in sin and shame, then you point to their forgiveness in Christ and become their accountability partner not their judge. When you find it easier to point fingers in your church, in your relationship, than to pull together, to be knit together, then it may be you who needs to question if your faith is real. We have to be bound together to grow together as a body with Christ as our head, with him as our uh, purpose and as our focus. You have to be connected to Christ to grow in your faith. And it's not about the individual practices. It's about your relationship with him as the head. Above all, your faith starts and stands on your relationship with Christ. Then by him, you are knitted together in the body, in the church. And this is why Christianity isn't a religion. It's not a, a lone set of rules, regulations, and practices. It is just Jesus and how you react and relate to him. So even in the, the writing of this letter that Paul sent to the Colossians, as we talked about earlier, in chapters 1 and 2, we get the foundation. We get the, a, a knowledge, a deeper knowledge than, than in many of the other books of the Bible, a deep Christology of who Christ is. Before in 3 and 4, he tells us how to then live out according to it. So we have been bound together to grow together as a body with Christ as our head. And that's why we're going to continue on uh, in verse 20. If you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to the regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. Paul is saying to the Colossians, if you have died with Christ... If your faith is in him, why let the world in its thinking, the world with its practices, the human commands and doctrines still govern and guide your life? You don't belong to the world anymore. You belong to Christ because you were buried with him, died with him, and as we read last week, you were resurrected with him. So you are new and alive and free and victorious. So why would you now let the world that was your master continue to tell you how to live your new life in Christ? Although these, 23, although these have a reputation for wisdom, they have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, 
false humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. Paul is calling all this a self-made religion, and yet it may look good, it may sound good, but all it promotes, all this legalism, aestheticism, mysticism, all it promotes is a reliance on and a confidence in yourself rather than in Christ. If you want to mature in your faith, then it must start with Christ, not religious practices. Even the practices God has for us now, praying, reading the word, coming to church, if those are done, but there is no active relationship with Christ, if you're not coming here to worship him and to be knit together in relationship with one another, if you're not reading his word to grow in the knowledge of who he is and how we should live in that wisdom, if you're not praying to him, thanking him, petitioning him, listening for him to respond and then guide you, then you're just holding a ritual and you're no better than, than the following the laws of man because without Christ there is no substance. Um, We've got a, a couple holidays coming up that we can observe, right? Just the, the Jews observe their holidays. We've got Christmas, especially. That's going to be on everyone's mind. We're going to be preaching through some things related to that. And we celebrate and we observe Christmas as Christians because it represents the, the birth of Christ, our longing, our waiting for him to come, and now for him to even return. It's a celebration of what God did uh, in Christ coming to this earth, in the miracle of his birth. But a lot of people celebrate Christmas that are not Christians. If you celebrate Christmas and it's about the lights and the presents and the food and the, the Hallmark movies then that's not the substance of what Christmas is. It's empty. It's in vain. It has, to be, it has to be full of Christ. So church, prayer, works, and reading the word, they are empty without Christ because then it just becomes all about us. When we seek Christ, too often we get distracted. Because it's easy to get focused on a system. It's easy to get more focused on what is required, a job to be done, than it is on our relationship. Um, taking off to-do boxes on our faith is easier than coming to terms with Christ. Uh, to face him face-to-face -face from our knees because that's where he meets us. Today I want to challenge you to seek his face, to seek his desires for your life, because so often believers will build for themselves comfortable little spiritual lives, right? Spiritual lives, spiritual habits and practices. You know, I'm going to get up, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to check my boxes, right? And this leads to a stunted growth and an, and an unwillingness to grow and get out of that comfort zone, to get out of that level of your faith, you say, no, I'm good, I'll stay right here, I don't need to get more involved in this or that, I don't need to tell someone about Christ, I'm sure they've heard. God will send someone, I'm not going to go to that group at church, I'm not going to go on that trip, I'll just stay home and I'll watch Fox News like a good Christian, right? Because that's where my part is, that's the role that God has for me. Allow God to shatter these false walls that you have put up in your life and simply seek 
Jesus. Seek his face. Let him mold and shape your life. Let him give you structure. Let him give you practices. Let him call you with a desire to read his word, to pray to him, to serve his people. And let him give you purpose through a relationship, not through a religion. Terry, if you'll come up. The problem with the practices of legalism and aestheticism and mysticism is that they they are trying to lead your new life back into bondage, back into slavery and in death. There is freedom in Christ from the world that we may live in it but no longer be of it. The man-made laws of legalism will never be enough to curb your sin and self-indulgence. It's only in Christ, in his grace and mercy, that every debt has been paid. There is no emotional high, no epic experience of something supernatural, of mysticism that will ever change you in the way the truth and the knowledge and the wisdom of Christ and a relationship with him can. No frills are necessary, just an understanding and accepting of the truth. And there is no amount of self-sacrifice that builds up a false humility that will ever amount to the sacrifice that Christ has made for you already on the cross. If you would like to come forward this morning, if you would like to pray uh, together or on your own, the altar is open for you now. Number 344, grace greater than our sin, 344.